0: Welcome to IBGI's OrthoInform, where we talk all things ortho to help you move better, live better. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Shahab. With OrthoInform, our goal is to provide you with an in-depth resource about common orthopedic procedures that we perform every day. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Hamming, who will be speaking about the rotator cuff. As a brief introduction, Dr. Hamming graduated from Princeton University in 2001 with a degree Magna Cum Laude in Molecular Biology. He attended Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, where he was selected to the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society and graduated in 2005. He completed his residency training at the University of Minnesota in 2010. He then did his advanced surgical fellowship training at the Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Colorado in 2011, which is considered one of the most prestigious sports medicine surgical training programs in the country. In fact, as a fellow, Dr. Hamming worked with the Denver Broncos during the Tebow years and the Colorado Rockies. Since completion of his fellowship, Dr. Hamming has been an attending sports medicine surgeon at Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, specializing in arthroscopic surgery of the knee and shoulder. He is one of the team doctors for the Chicago Wolves. Dr. Hamming has helped thousands of patients recover from injury and return to an active, productive lifestyle. So, David, welcome to Ortho Inform, and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here this morning.
0: So let's get right into it. We're here to talk about the rotator cuff. Let's describe the rotator cuff for our listeners. What's the anatomy?
1: The rotator cuff is really a group of four tendons that originate off the shoulder blade, the scapula, and blend together and insert on the humerus to really hold together the shoulder joint. People oftentimes call it different names. They call it the rotary cup, or (laughs) or I'm sure you've heard all the different terminology, but it's really a cuff of tissue that's blended together of four tendons.
0: So these four tendons work in synchrony with each other. They work as a unit, correct?
1: Right. I tend to tell patients they're the fine-tuning muscles around the shoulder, that much of the strength comes from your pec tendon, your lat tendon, the big muscles that you see when you you look at bodybuilders. But the rotator cuff are the the fine-tuning muscles that help with positioning of the shoulder.
0: If we had to describe the function of the rotator cuff, which can be a little bit difficult, we talk in medical terms about it being a humeral head depressor. But in layman's term, what does that mean? for the function of the rotator cuff?
1: I think of it as not even a depressor, but a compressor. So it's holding the socket together by taking the ball of the humerus and compressing it into the cup called the glenoid. And it's by holding that ball centered in the glenoid that allows us the great uh, range of motion that we have and the ability to, to do power overhead and away from our body.
0: What are some of the signs that patients might have that something's wrong with their rotator cuff?
1: Certainly one of the the presenting symptoms to us is when they come in with pain. And that can be either a chronic presentation, it's been getting worse throughout years, or it can be more acute if they do something where they are starting the lawnmower or the snowblower, depending upon the season, and they feel a sudden twinge in the shoulder.
0: And some of the other symptoms besides pain, for instance, if there is a tear of the rotator cuff or the rotator cuff's not working normally, What are some of the other signs and symptoms that they'll have? Pain is number one. right?
1: So their symptom, their presentation complaint, is usually the the pain. What I look for on my exam, though, is more weakness. Mm -hmm. And there can be lots of different reasons to have shoulder pain. You can have bursitis, tendonitis, variations of what we call impingement. But the weakness is really what indicates to me that there could be a a real uh, problem with the rotator cuff.
0: Now, you and I both see it where patients come in with, that type of shoulder pain, and we're trying to distinguish if they have a rotator cuff tear. There are many, many problems of the rotator cuff, the tendonitis that you mentioned, the impingement that you mentioned, but you feel that weakness is a distinguishing factor, so do I. But let's say someone has a very severe rotator cuff problem. How do they present?
1: Sometimes they can't even move their arm. They either struggle to get it above shoulder level. I look for something that I call hiking, and I think the therapists see that a lot when patients present with shoulder problems. They move more through their shoulder blade joint with the chest wall Mm -hmm. rather than through the shoulder joint, the glenohumeral joint itself. And then when the tear is really severe, uh, patients present with what's called a pseudoparalytic shoulder. And if you break down that terminology, it really means that it's It looks like they're paralyzed, Mm -hmm. but falsely so, because it's not that the nerves don't work. It's not that they have true paralysis. It's that the the tendon is disconnected, and as hard as they try to, to fire those muscles, it's disconnected and will never generate the power to raise it overhead.
0: And I also find, and I'm sure you do too, that one of the things that brings people into the doctor's office is sometimes the weakness and the functional problems that they have, but most commonly... The night pain. The night pain,
1: exactly right, yeah. Whether it's inflammation, uh, a real tear, shoulders are notorious for causing troubles with sleeping. Do
0: you have any idea why?
1: Truthfully, I do not.
0: Yeah, I, I don't either. And, and, and every person comes in with it, and um, yeah. I just don't know what causes it. I don't know whether it's hormonal or, or, uh, or positional or blood pressure. I, I just don't know what causes it. I think
1: it. some of it must be positional because, uh, as you know, in postoperative patients particularly, they tend to sleep better sitting upright. And well, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but, you know, the recliner and things like that where their shoulder is not quite as supine as right. the rest of the body. But. Right,
0: right. And then in terms of the diagnosis, you mentioned some of the physical exam findings that they may, that they'll have pain with certain maneuvers. They'll have weakness with muscle testing. But what are some of the other ways that we can diagnose rotator cuff
1: injuries? Well, certainly we... In orthopedics, we rely a lot on imaging. I always start with plain x rays or radiographs, mm-hmm. and that serves twofold. One is to rule out other things that could be presenting similarly, like arthritis. Mm-hmm. And the second reason is that we can see how the ball is sitting in the cup and to make sure that it is being centered, that it's not trying to escape out the top or out the front, Mm -hmm. and to see if there's any evidence of some chronic rotator cuff problems as well, where we see that there's some spurs forming in different locations.
0: So x-rays provide a lot of information for the rotator cuff, even though you can't visualize the rotator cuff exactly directly. Right. But you can visualize the rotator cuff with other imaging modalities.
1: Yeah, certainly both MRI would be considered the gold standard to image the rotator cuff. There's certainly indications of using an ultrasound as well to, to take a look at the rotator cuff. If I'm concerned about the rotator cuff, I virtually always send them for an MRI with the appropriate indications.
0: And you and I both see this all the time. An MRI comes back and patients are phenomenally concerned about a report that reads moderate grade, partial thickness, rotator cuff tear. Yes. Take our listener through the significance of that read because that seems to be the thing that freaks most people out.
1: Right. I tried to actually talk a little bit about that beforehand mm-hmm. so that they, they don't happen to see the report before I have a chance to, to Explain interpret it. that for right, them. Right. Because you're exactly right. People see the word tear and they're thinking that they're going to need to have a surgery. Whereas, to me, a partial thickness rotator cuff tear can really just be some natural aging Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. It can be a true injury, too, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not completely detached, which is an important factor when I consider the treatment options for them because there's plenty of patients that have a partial thickness rotator cuff tear that do quite well. And hearkening back to my experience with the Rockies, there are plenty of major league pitchers that have abnormal looking MRIs with their labrums and their rotator cuffs and everything, and they're out there throwing over 90 miles an hour. Without pain. Without pain. Right. Doing quite well. So a partial thickness rotator cuff tear is something to certainly uh, treat, but not necessarily to operate on.
0: Right. There was a study by Andrews looking at minor league baseball pitchers and who were all throwing hard, none of them had shoulder pain. and. of them had labral injuries, 90% of them had partial thickness rotator cuff injuries, and none of them needed any treatment, actually, because they're all throwing hard as can be and didn't have any pain. And his conclusion from the study was, if you want an excuse to do surgery, go get an MRI. So so the MRI is incredibly important for interpreting the rotator cuff, but people should expect that it's not going to come back saying normal MRI.
1: Exactly right. And I always put it in perspective for the layman who's not a major league pitcher, that if we were to MRI their other shoulder, it could look very similar and they're not here to see us for their contralateral side.
0: Right. So I guess the lesson is there's clearly a lot more to the diagnosis of a rotator cuff problem than just the MRI findings. It's obviously the whole picture of pain and weakness, plus the findings from the MRI that can be helpful. With partial thickness rotator cuff tears, I try and describe it sometimes as a thinning of the tendon. And for instance, if we have a carpet that's been shredded on, a radiologist might come in and instead of saying, oh, your carpet looks a little bit thin, they might say, oh, you have partial thickness tearing of your worn carpet here. Yes. And, and not that it's torn completely, but just thinned a little bit.
1: I, agree. I would agree.
0: But obviously the rotator cuff can tear and the muscles can pull away from the bone. So let's talk about these type of tears. How do you categorize rotator cuff tears in your practice?
1: I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can categorize them, but the two that I think are most important are acute versus chronic. The blood supply to the rotator cuff is not that great. So there is a natural tendency that with time for it to, as you said, show some wear and show some tread. And so the chronic presentation where they've had some pain for a little while and it's uh, bothering them with sleeping, but they haven't had an acute injury event, Mm -hmm. uh, that is certainly one type of tear. The second tear I look for is a more acute injury where they fall down the stairs and they grab the railing, mm-hmm. or they start the snowblower with a big crank and their arm goes pop. Right. The, the acute injury can happen even in the younger population, whereas the chronic injuries we tend to see more in the 50s, 60s, and older. But I've seen patients, as I'm sure you have, in the you know, 30s that have those acute injuries.
0: Right. And, and with the degenerative tears, it's kind of part of life. If you look at the natural history studies of rotator cuffs, yes. I mean, you, pr- you know this data better than me, There's a certain incidence of degenerative tears as we age. Yeah,
1: I'm aware of a study that shows that, you know, when you you get to your 80s, uh, greater than half the population has a rotator cuff tear. And And that doesn't mean it's symptomatic.
0: That half really doesn't know they have it. Right. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I will explain to patients that it's a natural progression for the rotator cuff to pull away from the bone, to tear away from the bone. But if it's over a gradual process, that there's a, a means for the body to compensate. Right sometimes we 'll even use the four engine analogy on a seven forty seven I remember saying it 's like a seven forty seven and someone said you 're calling me a jumbo seven forty seven and i said I, I said no well you know seven forty seven has four engines mm-hmm. if one of those engines drops out, the airplane can still fly, and likewise your rotator cuff has four muscles, and if one of those muscles drops out, the shoulder can still work, it can still fly. it just may not have the power or the thrust which As you do get older, you may not miss it as much, and may not even notice it. And so,
1: and with a chronic scenario, if it's happening over years rather than one day, your body has a way of compensating, right, retraining itself to take up the slack. Right. Whereas if it happens acutely, that can be definitely more of a challenge. Yeah.
0: When we are talking about treatment for rotator cuff injuries, the two treatment options are generally non-operative versus operative treatment, and there are lots of variables that go into that decision. I think about them in terms of the patient characteristics and the tear characteristics. I think about age and activity and pain and function for the patient. So speak to each one of those. Let's start with age.
1: So age is certainly a factor. I look at the patient's physiologic age more necessarily than their chronologic age, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure we do in all of our patients, but particularly with rotator cuff tears, because Their demands that they want out of the shoulder, the health of their shoulder in general with the the biology Mm -hmm. um, will affect how well they can compensate, but also how well it can heal. Because if we do proceed with the surgery and we make the pictures look perfect, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to be able to heal it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So age definitely plays a role into that, mainly because of the biology and the blood supply.
0: Then if we look at activity demands.
1: It is a natural tendency that as patients age that they demand less out of their bodies. Again, I take that on a patient-by-patient case because there's going to be people that are in their 80s that want to go play tennis, and we need to be able to get them as close to that performance level as they can, whereas there's plenty of laborers that have specialized activities they do overhead, such as electricians and other people that need to do a lot of overhead work that, that we need to make sure they can get back to those jobs as well.
0: Right. And then some of the tear characteristics in terms of the size of the tear, the number mm-hmm. of tendons.
1: My experience has been that the pain that patients are in doesn't necessarily correlate to the size of the tear. Yeah. And in fact, some that's such
0: an important point, right? I mean, we right. see that all the time.
1: Right. And I think that sometimes the more painful tears are actually the smaller tears. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a great physiologic reason for that, mm-hmm. other than the fact that maybe some of the The fibers that are still left intact are just seeing so much different load because they're being stressed beside it. But the size is important for both helping to regain their strength as well as to help predict their ability to heal it. Mm -hmm. Um, But not necessarily with their pain because virtually all orthopedic interventions, surgical or non-surgical, we can help improve patients' pain. Right. But when we come time to talk about the size... I think that's more predictive of healing potential and strength. So the
0: bigger the tear, whether it involves one tendon or two tendon or farther away from where it belongs. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Um, Then the bigger the tear or the farther away it is, then the the less likely they will recover full strength. Correct. And the less likely that'll actually heal after it's repaired.
1: That's right. So some of the data that I'm aware of, if it's about one centimeter, which would be considered small, Mm Uh, That has about a 90% chance of healing and then as it gets out to where you have three to five or greater than five Which are considered massive tears, Mm -hmm. you know less than half of those are going to completely heal right now Sometimes they heal with a spot weld And so you do regain a lot of strength and function because you do get partial healing But if you were to say well, is this truly fully healed that's not nearly as successful when you're dealing with these massive large tears But the point I always stress to patients is that that doesn't mean that clinically they don't feel better. So they should definitely see improvement, particularly with their pain.
0: So even a partial healing response where the tendon doesn't fully heal but a part of it does will typically result in pain relief and improved
1: function for the patients. Correct. One of the questions I get often is, well, how do we know if it heals? Do we need to re-MRI it to see how it looks? Right. And I always tell them, first of all, a surgically repaired shoulder never looks normal. So it's never going to say completely healed or looks perfect. right? So uh, so I tend not to re-MRI patients unless they really have symptoms. I tell them we base their healing on how well they're doing clinically.
0: Let's go for sort of the easy ones for the non-operative treatment yeah. and then the operative treatment. I think of like an easy indication for someone who's going to be treated non-operatively is someone who sort of incidentally by accident finds out that they actually have a rotator cuff tear. Like for some reason they had a shoulder MRI and there's a tear of the rotator cuff that they didn't even know they had. They're an older patient, perhaps. They're well compensated. Yeah. It's if they were having any discomfort, that seems like a no-brainer to give physical therapy. I'd track. start
1: with some physical therapy. If their pain seemed to be flaring, I'd offer them an injection. We'd do some anti-inflammatories. Go that route for sure. Yeah. So as we talked about before, the partial thickness tears, virtually any initial presentation of that, I would start them non-operatively. Right. And then follow them out to see how they progress. And then for other non-operative candidates, I think it, it's really individual and in how they present, as you said. I have patients that come in with big tears, but they've been more chronic, and they can raise their arm overhead. And if you test their strength, they're pretty darn good. And, right. and I tell you, you know, if you look like this after I repaired it, I'd be pretty happy. Right. And yeah. I don't think, I mean, I realize you're not perfect, but I'm not sure we can make you that much better.
0: Right. I mean, it, it is so interesting about rotator cuffs, because you can have the exact same MRIs on two different people. Mm-hmm. And one person can literally throw a baseball at 70 miles an hour and throw batting practice, and the other person can't raise their arm as an in insufferable pain, and their MRIs can be absolutely identical. So it's not just anatomy. It, there has to be something about how the nerves work, how they can compensate, because if it yeah. were just anatomy, they should have the exact same function as well. Right, So right. it's a, a totally interesting problem. That's why I like doing this. I,
1: year after year, that's why there's so many studies that are presented favoring both non-operative and surgical intervention because there's no right answer. Right. It's an individual treatment.
0: There are a couple slam-dunk indications for non-operative treatment and slam-dunk indications for surgery. And I think of a slam-dunk indication is someone younger in their 40s or 50s yes. who has an acute injury and and has a rapid dysfunction of their shoulder from the injury and they have a tear on their, a rotator cuff tear in their MRI.
1: Yes, I would agree. And those do pretty well. They do really well, actually. Yeah. yeah the healing potential is good. In general, their, their biology is pretty good. The tendon hasn't degenerated that much. The blood supply, we can supplement some with the techniques that we use, and they have good healing potential, and they're usually pretty motivated to get better. And
0: then, obviously, the gray area in between that we talked about is where we individualize the right. the, the indications for surgery. Let's go to the surgery. It's evolved over time, and so take us back to how rotator cuff repairs were done, let's say, 30, 40 years ago and right. how they're being done currently today
1: the goal of the the surgery is to restore anatomy so there's certainly surgeries that we do that alter anatomy mm-hmm. and this is one where we're trying to restore anatomy and so the general principles have pretty much stayed the same and i think you could maybe even make an argument that our current techniques have gone back to some of the initial principles right. of the, or the old open techniques but certainly the surgery started with an open incision kind of a saber incision is what we'd call it over the side of the shoulder and uh, get maximal exposure, see what you're there to repair. And with the advent of arthroscopy, we've been able to minimize the, at least the skin incision and the invasiveness of that surgery. And in my personal opinion is actually improved the surgery uh, because you can get better visualization arthroscopically rather than through one big hole. You can look all around the shoulder with a scope and really assess the tear, be pretty pinpoint with where you want to put your implants, and uh, limit the amount of uh, collateral damage of the surgery.
0: It seems most of us are doing these rotator cuff repairs arthroscopically or arthroscopically a- assisted, and it's, it's a rare case where we're doing an open repair. Right. And it does seem to help with the recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're restoring anatomy. Right. We're, we're sewing that tendon back down to the bone but any sort of routine augmentation for the repairs?
1: I try to make sure that the the footprint, the the part on the humeral head where we're repairing it it has a pretty healthy-looking area to dock the tendon into. Mm -hmm. The implants that we use are actually fluted now, so the bone marrow is coming out through the anchor and really helping that, uh, that healing. So I think that a lot of... Uh, you know, grafts like people use skin grafts or they used to use porcine or pig grafts to help augment areas. I personally have not really found the need or indications for that.
0: Right. Well, I, I agree. So let's take it from the patient perspective. So, a patient has been indicated for a rotator cuff repair. What can they expect the day of surgery? This is typically
1: done, it's I- done as an outpatient. Mm-hmm you know they usually come in about an hour hour and a half before the surgery they get their iv they talk to the nursing staff they Mm -hmm. talk to the anesthesiologist it's a rare patient these days that we don't offer a a nerve block to Mm -hmm. and that is a an injection that the anesthesiologist puts at the base of their neck to really numb up the arm for the rest of the day i think that helps in two ways one is that it helps the post-operative pain and get patients, you know, on board with their oral medicines and transition to home more comfortably. But it also allows the anesthesiologist to give them less anesthesia, Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't have to be quite as deep and under general anesthesia, and they uh, they have less nausea and less side effects from the anesthetic. Mm -hmm. And then the procedure takes about how long? Depending upon how much other work we're doing in there, because usually when we're doing this surgery, it's not just the rotator cuff. There's some other things that we look at in the shoulder as well. But I would say anywhere between for the smallest tears an hour to Mm -hmm. sometimes with the massive tears over two hours.
0: So the patients will have a postoperative experience that goes over a course of six to 12 months. Let's start with the first week after surgery.
1: All of the patients that I do, I place in something called an ultra sling, Mm -hmm. a little pillow sling where Mm -hmm. they have their arm out to the side. That really helps take some of the tension off the repair Mm -hmm. because with your arm at your side, that's actually putting the repair on maximal stretch. And so some people think it's there for comfort or other reasons, but it's really there to help protect the repair. Right. I let them come out of it uh, starting uh, within the first couple of days after surgery to do some dangling exercises. Mm-hmm. We call those pendulums and I tell them it's kind of letting their arm rotate around like an elephant trunk. Mm-hmm. Um, they can take it off to bathe. So that's oftentimes a nice time to do it. They get mm-hmm. the warm water running over their shoulder and they do their exercises. They work on moving their elbow and their wrist so they don't get too stiff mm-hmm. uh, with those joints. But other than that, it's really just letting the biology do the work. They yep. need to sleep in the sling. They need to uh, be in public in the sling. They can't drive. I, I really try to get them to protect it the first at least four weeks. Yep. And personally, I will go between either four to six weeks in that sling, depending upon the size of the tear, the quality of the tissue that we're dealing with.
0: And then sleep. Sleep after surgery. Um, A lot of patients have difficulty. What are some tips on that? I always
1: tell patients this is a painful surgery. Um, And so they're going to need some assistance. They're going to use ice. They're going to use pain medications and they're going to have to find a way to be comfortable. As we alluded to before, for some reason, the upright position seems to be more comfortable post-operatively than trying to sleep on their back. So I usually tell people to find a recliner or get a bunch of pillows and get themselves a little comfortable nest to uh, get in for the rest of the evening and do their best.
0: I'm smiling because I use the exact same language (laughs) of a nest. And there's a Lazy Boy store about half a mile Mm -hmm. from our office that people have actually rented a recliner from. So Yeah. yeah, exactly the same thing. And then You know, after um, that that first week, which is pretty challenging, no one will ever say, gosh, I wish I got him another rotator cuff surgery. But but then after six weeks, we get him out of the sling typically four to six weeks. And then what does the rehab look like?
1: It's a long rehab. Mm -hmm. Probably the two longest rehabs we have are ACL surgery and rotator cuff surgery. And um, it's because we have to let the biology do the work at the beginning, and then we have to regain range of motion. So... Between that four to six week mark and then about three months, I have them focus on range of motion, and that's getting it actively and passively over their head, out to the side. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing they always get is behind their back, Right. you know, getting past their hip pocket to the middle of their back. And, you know, I hear all the time with the the ladies doing their bra and other things, getting to the back of their hair, Mm -hmm. doing things behind them is certainly the slowest, but that progresses with time. And then at three months, I usually let them start uh, working on their strengthening. Yep and we start easy with some bands just light resistance i make clear to them that they're not in the weight room they're not building bulk it's fine-tuning relearning how to use the shoulder the earliest I usually let patients go back to full activity is around six months. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, with people's jobs and other sports and things like that, sometimes we can cheat that a little bit as long as they're not putting too much stress through it. But I, I think it really takes about six months to be able to safely do most activities.
0: Yeah, that's the same number I um, hang the hat on. And, you know, I, I'll tell patients you'll at six months you'll be about 85% fully recovered. Yeah. And you'll make that other 15% over the course of the next Six, six months, months or so, right. Yeah, so about a year. You know, it's hard to get people fully 100% back to where they were, and I use a pitcher analogy. Like if a major league baseball pitcher has a rotator cuff surgery, they may have thrown 100 miles an hour beforehand, but they might throw 85 miles afterwards, which yeah. so you can't quite get the power. But most of us aren't major league baseball pitching, Right. and we get them so close to normal that they typically don't notice a difference.
1: right i always tell patients my goal yeah. is 90 percent of normal yeah for you it's never going to be 100 percent. Right. there's going to be a little stiffness a little weakness maybe some occasional discomfort but but it should be definitely better than where we started
0: yes yes and that's the main thing is to realize that it is so much better than where it started mm-hmm. where it was weak and painful and keeping people awake at night and then they get almost complete normal shoulder function back in fact most of the time so close to normal that they don't notice a difference. That's right. And then complications. Um, what are some of the common complications after a rotator cuff yeah, procedure?
1: Yeah, there's certainly complications to any surgery, but a rotator cuff surgery for as, as painful as it is at the beginning and as long as the rehab it is, it's a pretty safe, a straightforward surgery. There's always anesthetic risks. These days I've heard anesthesia tell patients, That it's more dangerous for them to drive to the surgery center in the morning than it is to actually have the the anesthetic. So I think the odds are certainly with them there. But it's certainly an anxiety point for people having general anesthetic. There's always a risk of infection. Mm -hmm. The shoulder has some specific bacteria around it that we think a little bit more about. But one of the advantages of doing these surgeries arthroscopically is that we're constantly flushing the shoulder out with water. And so we're constantly refreshing the environment we're working in and and essentially self-cleaning it while we're doing it. So thankfully, the risk of infection is quite low. Most of the time, I quote, less than 1%. Mm -hmm. And patients end up with scars rather than one big scar down the front like it used to be. I usually use four or five teeny little poke holes around the shoulder that tend to fade away with time. There's always a small risk of nerve or blood vessel injury. But again, we're working way away from those in, in this type of shoulder arthroscopy. So I think that the chance of that is quite low as well. Mm-hmm. But I always mention it. And then there's actual complications with the procedure that we're doing. Uh, there's never a 100% guarantee that it will heal. Mm-hmm. And if the patient's biology doesn't uh, cooperate, if there's a problem with stiffness afterwards, if there's a, the patient is a little too aggressive, sometimes patients uh, you know honestly feel too good afterwards, mm-hmm. and they, they think they can do a little bit more than they should be, there's always the, the chance that they could rerupture.
0: If you do enough of these, they're bound to happen. Yes, yes. And we do have ways to help patients with those complications.
1: Absolutely. We don't have to do them a whole lot, but right. there's always ways that we can deal with them.
0: Let's go through the typical rotator cuff patient who comes in with problems with pain, strength and function, and potentially range of motion. What can that patient expect as the outcome from their surgery?
1: The number one reason to have the surgery is to improve the pain outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the other two things you mentioned with range of motion and strength are certainly less predictable. Mm -hmm. And so my uh, expectation is that their pain is significantly improved. Mm -hmm. They could still have some discomfort, uh, occasionally a little tweak, but I tell the patients that their expectation should be significant improvement in pain. As far as how they do with their strength and their range of motion. You know, patients are not going to have 100% strength afterwards. That's mm-hmm. not a realistic expectation. But to go from not being able to raise their arm overhead to be able to, to at least do some work overhead, I think that's, that's a reasonable goal. Again, about 90% of their function with regards to that. Mm-hmm. And then I think that with my experience, range of motion is a little less predictable, mm-hmm. where the, the shoulder has a natural tendency to tighten up a little bit. As yeah. we do the repair, there's a little scar. The tendon gets a little tighter with the tear, you lose a little bit of the tendon. Mm -hmm. So that uh, destroys some of the the tissue itself. And so it it has a natural tendency to get a little tighter. And so getting your arm all the way behind your back, all the way to the, you know, symmetric with the left side it is probably not as reliable.
0: I don't think it can be overstated the importance of physical therapy after surgery.
1: I I would completely agree, yeah. And so i never give patients the option of starting with a home program. Uh, there are certainly, uh, some trends to do more individualized home programs where they're not having to go into therapy as much. We've seen that especially with COVID recently, Mm -hmm. but I think that learning the techniques, making sure your form is correct, making sure you're not overdoing it, Mm -hmm. but making sure that you're still being aggressive enough to see the gains we need you to make is really best done under the guidance of physical therapy.
0: We clearly have very similar practice patterns. I agree with everything you've said. I just want to ask if you have any other insights regarding rotator cuff repairs, rotator cuff surgery, patients undergoing these that you'd like to share?
1: I I think I'd like to mention one more thing that always comes up as a corollary of this discussion, and that's the biceps tendon. Mm -hmm. And this is always a challenging discussion with patients because of how, at least I've always had a challenge... Conveying what's actually going on with the biceps tendon mm-hmm. in a short amount of time to, to help them understand. So, maybe I'll take a, just a minute here to talk to them about that. Please, yeah, that'd be great. Um, so, the reason we're going to patients' shoulders most of the time is to repair the rotator cuff, mm-hmm. as we've been, just been talking about. But the patients have two biceps tendon attachments, and one of them is outside the shoulder, which is always quite healthy. But the second one, called the long head of the biceps, runs up through the shoulder joint, and it actually attaches inside the the joint itself. With the tears that we're talking about, oftentimes that biceps is intimately involved in the tear. Mm -hmm. It's either destabilized and actually floating around in the tear, Mm -hmm. or as we do the repair, it can alter how that biceps tendon is functioning because of how we tighten the tissues around it. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, oftentimes that tendon is not very healthy to start. I've certainly gone into patients' shoulders before where it's either hanging by a thread or it's already gone because of the trauma that that tendon has seen throughout the years or acutely. So i never like to leave a patient's shoulder without at least thoroughly evaluating the long head of the biceps Mm -hmm. tendon. I think that in the past, it has been, if it looks pretty good, we've just left it. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that patients have had some persistent pain because of the dysfunction of the biceps after the repair. And so if there's any indication whether that tendon is being destabilized because of the tear or it's going to get entrapped because of the repair, or it's just not a healthy looking tendon at all, I tend to do something with that. Yep. And I recommend one of two things, and that's either to cut the tendon and let it go. That's called a biceps release. And my personal experience, and I think the data would support that the pain relief is quite good with that. Yep. I perceive that surgery as, the biggest downside is cosmetic is that when i tell patients if they go flex in the mirror afterwards and they look at both arms one might look a little bit more like popeye Mm -hmm. than the other side but functionally they should still be able to turn a wrench they should still be able to do 90 plus percent of their activities with no restrictions they might feel a little crampy at the beginning but overall they should not notice any difference in their arm function Mm -hmm. the second option though is to reattach it and that's called the biceps tenodesis and there's lots of different ways that you can reattach it which I, i don't think we need to get into here But the main reason for that, in my opinion, is cosmetic. You can have an argument about whether there's subtle differences in some of the the functional tests that we do. I'm always worried about whether at the reattachment side or still pulling through the tendon there that that we could cause some more discomfort down the line. Right. So I always have an individualized discussion with the patient about those risks and benefits for them particularly. But I'd say in general, the outcomes in my hands are a little bit more favorable with releasing it.
0: Well, we really do have similar practice (laughs) patterns. I, I totally agree. And when I talk to patients about biceps um, release versus biceps tenodesis, where we're anchoring in into the bone, I'll sometimes just use Brett Favre or John exactly Elway as an right. example, these yeah. guys whose long head biceps either tore spontaneously or had them surgically cut, right. who then won a couple of Super Bowls afterwards. Yeah. And so I think that gives people an idea of just how well you can function with the release of a biceps.
1: Right. And, and so... Um, it was real easy in Denver to, get, to sell that. Because because John Elway is an idol out there. And and they said, oh, I'm getting the John Elway treatment. I'm in.
0: Well, listen, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here with the rotator cuff, which is not easy to do. I think the big points being, number one, every rotator cuff tear has its own personality, I guess. And every patient who has a rotator cuff tear needs individualized evaluation, individualized treatment plans. You know, you hear an awful lot about people talking about their friend who had a rotator cuff injury, and it really could be along any line spectrum. And and I try and tell people not to gauge their expectations based on someone else's experience because it's so individual. Yeah, Um, I would completely agree. Yeah. David Hamming, thank you so much for being here with Ortho Inform. We really appreciate your taking the time. If our listeners would like to learn more about Dr. Hamming and his practice, please visit IBJI.com. Again, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much, Eric. It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to IBJI's Inform, brought to you by the Illinois Bone & Joint Institute, where our goal is to always help you move better, live better. If you would like to learn more about IBJI and our comprehensive musculoskeletal services, please visit our website at IBJI.com. The discussion in this podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, Regarding musculoskeletal conditions, the information provided does not constitute the practice of medicine or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Listeners with musculoskeletal conditions should seek the advice of their healthcare professionals without delay for any condition they have. The use of the information in this podcast is at the listener's own risk. The content is not intended to replace diagnosis, treatment, or medical advice from your treating healthcare professional.